0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in wherever you are around the world. As ever, we have got so much to cram in during our short time together. If it's okay with all of you, I my kind of theme will be reflecting on a question posed by Tony Benn in his time. He used to say, not he didn't, he asserted it, he didn't pose it as a question. He used to say and those of you, you know, of a certain age will remember, he used to say, look, it's policies that matter, not personalities. And it was a sort of interesting assumption that what determines the course of history, the fate of governments and oppositions, is in the end policy and not personality. Is he right? I thought I would reflect on that looking at several running themes at the moment. The battle between salmon and Sturgeon in Scotland, Rishi Sunak and his budget, and a bit about Brexit. Is it the policies or the personalities? And then of course we'll have some of your questions. Great range of questions, one on the BBC, bits of Keir Starmer, bits of... Brexit of other stuff, you know, not what I'll be going on about. Uh, so yeah, tons. And take a deep breath and let's get going. Policies or personalities? I was reflecting on that whilst watching the extraordinary appearances of both Alex Salmond and Nicholas Sturgeon uh, in front of the Select Committee of the Scottish Parliament, uh, and. I was impressed with both of them in the hours of interrogation in terms of demeanour, mastery of detail, capacity to frame arguments, and reflected that there were no equivalents really in the Westminster Parliament at the moment with that same range. And you can see how an argument can easily be formed that the rise of the SNP has been dependent on those two personalities first of all Alex Salmond and then Nicola Sturgeon and there's no doubt at all that the SNP has benefited from them particularly I think uh, Salmond in the phase when first of all he was first minister in a hung parliament and he managed that hung parliament with great skill and guile and wiliness. And because he can frame an argument and uh, do so so effectively, um, he was became the biggest figure in Scottish politics for a time. And then he timed his departure perfectly for after the referendum uh, in 2014. And Nicola Sturgeon came in. She has a very appealing mix. She can do wit. Uh, and she, by the way, is one of those... Uh, The old Labour politician Barbara Castle uh, once uh, reflected on Margaret Thatcher and Barbara Castle, of course, was Labour, Labour, Labour. She said of Margaret Thatcher, power made her beautiful and what she meant was that power suited Thatcher. It was not inevitable. You couldn't tell in advance whether it would work or be a catastrophe, frankly but power made her beautiful. And if you look at the early interviews of Nicola Sturgeon before she became first minister, uh, she was rather awkward, self-conscious, and now she too is at ease with the role. Power has made her beautiful, irrespective of the incredible drama being played out, the falling out between the two of them. Um, So clearly, personality has had a big role in the rise of the SNP and the independence argument in the same way that the decline of the Scottish Labour Party has partly been about the quality of leadership. But Ben was onto something in saying always look for underlying themes. It's very interesting and largely forgotten, though I suspect not by the very big listenership in Scotland to this podcast that what happened in the immediate aftermath of the referendum in Scotland was a real driving force in the then rise of the SNP. One of the great sort of ironies is that the SNP lost the referendum and then soared and it's been put down partly to that change of leadership with Nicola Sturgeon coming in and she certainly managed the wave brilliantly but the wave had to be there and it was partly, no doubt, the sense of anti climax amongst some that after the extraordinary tensions and drama of a referendum, everything then continued as normal, the status quo was in place. Uh, but it wasn't only that, it yeah, kind of again you go back to David Cameron and the many errors that he made, and one of them was that the morning after that referendum in uh, 2014 he popped up at about seven o'clock in the morning outside number 10 and announced a new policy about how in the House of Commons there would be uh, English laws for English members that uh, it would be a sort of quite a big change in that Uh, MPs from Scotland would not be allowed to vote for English legislation he was trying to please his party after the referendum but as those of you in Scotland will remember all hell broke loose it looked as if he had in effect fiddled the referendum by announcing a significant policy that affected the constitution the power and weight of Scottish MPs at Westminster immediately afterwards once the votes had been cast and i remember doing a uh, something on uh, radio scotland good morning scotland on the saturday after cameron had announced that and one of the producers said to me you know before we went on air all hell's breaking loose about this uh, i was in talking about cameron and what he was up to and once again cameron appeasing the right English nationalist dimension of his party he was always for all the Etonian smoothness fearful of his party he never mastered his party even though he himself was on the right Uh, it's multi-layered but politics is always multi-layered but in a way I would argue that move in certainly triggering the early explosion uh, of uh, support for Scottish nationalism uh, was almost as significant as the change of leadership within the SNP, and then there are other deeper factors. Always, it was interesting in the build-up to Sturgeon's hearing. You know that some of those who kind of loathe that whole thing, the SNP, you know, Andrew Neil was going hysterical, saying Scotland's a banana republic and all this kind of thing. And then the hearing took place, and it all subsided a bit. I'm not saying there aren't issues there. Uh, but it, it, it kind of, the hysteria subsided because it, it's, it's deeper than just getting sturgeon or just getting salmon. The capacity of England to elect uh, a succession of fairly right-wing conservative governments uh, who, in terms of competence, have, let's put it politely, questions to answer Uh, is another issue and again nothing to do with personality. I've always thought one of the driving forces of independence was that England had moved away from Scotland in some respects and it's reflected in that absolutely rigid program of austerity uh, imposed by Cameron Osborne in 2010 which was billed in England as centrist as part of a modernising of the Conservative Party when it was turbocharged Thatcherism. And some in Scotland noticed this, and then noticed the same government would be elected again and again. And some no doubt have noticed that uh, in England there is this record-breaking, global-breaking death toll and economic hit, and the Conservatives are 13 points ahead in the polls. And I think this is a factor in the appeal of independence and obviously Brexit. Uh, England uh, voted for it, Scotland didn't. So it is deeper forces always. And so it will be when or if a referendum is ever held. Uh, I think policy in the end will determine the outcome. I'm still Interested when I see Nicola Sturgeon perform effectively, as I have done on a whole range of different platforms, that she struggles sometimes with the policy, Uh, in particular the questions about a border between England and Scotland, and still about the currency that Scotland would use. And these detailed issues will determine the outcome. I'm not making any prediction about the outcome. Uh, I know a lot of you have emailed me from Scotland to say last time you voted for the status quo, next time you will vote for independence and I see the opinion polls. But these policy questions I suspect will be decisive one way or the other. You know the all, all these deeper issues like England's tendency to vote for right-wing conservative governments at every available opportunity. Um, as much No, no, i would go further. I think that they matter more than personality in the end. Uh, So, you know, the, the, the thorny issues about the consequences of independence, the driving forces that have made independence popular, these are kind of deeper waves than personality. So on that one, I sort of agree with Tony Benn, even though I can see that the, these two figures are hugely talented uh, for all the famous flaws that are being explored at the moment in both cases are hugely talented leaders and Westminster doesn't have them I mean, Boris Johnson could not do eight hours in front of any committee. Um, he struggles. Do you, I don't know if any of you watch him in front of the, the liaison committee. They're the chairs of all the select committees at Westminster. It goes on for about one and a half hours, two hours. And uh, he's so hesitant and tentative. Eight hours on one issue, um, I, I think he would explode. I think his hair would go uh, up, up to Mars In uh, panic at such a prospect. So personalities matter but deeper forces more so. I think that's the case with Brexit. In retrospect, although some said that to me at the time, when Cameron announced that referendum the course was set. The voters given a chance to kick Westminster, kick Europe and all the rest of it would take it. And that, in fact, all the focus on Dominic Cummings, this great genius of a campaigner, all the focus on the significance of Johnson after he had written his two columns, one in favour of staying in, the other in favour of staying out, and in the end he published the staying out one, and that determined the outcome. No, it didn't. What determined the outcome was the decision to call a referendum on the crudest of themes, in or out, without any of the multi-layered complexity remotely acknowledged in that silly Monty Python question so again it was the issue it wasn't the decision of boris johnson to fight the out campaign it wasn't the decision of michael gove to betray david cameron as david cameron saw it i always i mean i disagreed with him but i always was on gove's side if you believe in something you fight for it whereas cameron with that again etonian background he always thought sort of being a mate mattered more than principle uh, again revealing about uh, cameron so Yeah, on that one, that Ben thesis of policy, not personality, absolutely, completely. And then we come to another one, Sunak's budget. Rishi Sunak has the capacity to present uh, and almost to sort of the point of parody. I don't know if any of you saw that uh, lavish video he put out of him the day before his budget, you know, uh, kind of the Rishi show uh, at taxpayers' expense, this kind of budget of him drinking his Coke and one of his advisors saying, what was your reaction when you were made Chancellor? Oh, gosh, he has that kind of quite high pitched voice like Tony Blair but it's unexpectedly quite a useful tool that high-pitched voice because it conveys a passion and sincerity uh, that is not necessarily genuine but the voice is a good good voice a good mechanism for conveying these emotions Um, but I kind of think again follow the policy trail I always used to say that about Cameron and Osborne when, when the BBC uh, referred to them as if it was objective fact that they were centrists and modernizers well they might be very charming and they might not wear ties and they might go running and cycling but follow the policy trail and if you do that with the Rishi Sunak budget you quickly come to realize that it was quite a mess actually as a budget Um, the most successful budgets have a clear sense of purpose and vision and the policies are all it's like music you know they're all in place to develop that vision and purpose the best of Gordon Brown's ones were very intricate and elaborate uh, but the theme was always prudence for a purpose and so you could kind of see the prudence to keep middle England on board to keep the markets okay to keep the right-wing media just about at bay but then if you look carefully you could see the purpose too which was always with Brown social justice in some form or another better public services he loved the tax credits that did put money into people's pockets although many of them didn't realize it was via that government one of the problems it had I remember Robin Cook saying to me talk about Scotland Robin Cook, uh, whose constituency now, whose huge Labour majority, of course, now is a huge SNP majority, he used to say to me, um, constituents think that the money that's suddenly gone into their bank accounts is a technical adjustment from the inland revenue. They didn't realise it was a political act from a chancellor Determined to redistribute without shouting about it because he didn't want to alienate the Times and Rupert Murdoch's other papers. Um, but anyway, yeah, if you look at the Rishi Sunak budget, I mean, to Osborne, to give him credit, um, it was a disastrous policy, but there was a coherence to it that real term spending cuts would narrow the deficit. It, it, they didn't, by the way, it just meant the economy shrunk. But there was a sort of purpose to it. The Sunak one, what was the driving force? Uh, you know, at one moment, celebrating the role of the state by spending more during the pandemic, but then you discover there are kind of very tight constraints on public spending. Uh, then you discover a 1% pay rise for the NHS, which becomes a real terms cut then you discover all kinds of other weird things and then this kind of weird business tax cut in the short term is super deduction which if you invest you'll get in effect a tax cut but then that's countered by the corporation tax rises and it was a rather narrow budget Uh, as Starmer pointed out afterwards nothing on social care nothing on Uh, or very little actually on the environment and of course it's at the end hopefully at the end I wonder sometimes but hopefully at the end of this pandemic saga so he has to focus on that and the immediate consequences but these other issues are all interconnected and he didn't really address them so you got this kind of dishy-rishy oh gosh Um, And I will do everything it takes whenever it needs to be taken, uh, kind of line, tonally impressive and that slim, elegant figure um, delivering his budget. But follow the policy. And I think there is quite a lot of chaos built in to that policy. And by the way, quite a few people thought afterwards, oh, there's going to be an, an election quite soon. Tories ahead in the polls with gullible England voters just adoring everything. But that doesn't ring true to me. In other words, there would be a budget before the tax rises came into effect. I wonder about that. Um, Because the pitch at an early election for the Conservatives would be, «Vote for us, we're about to put up your taxes». And that is not a pitch a Conservative Party ever makes, at least when it wants to win elections, which it usually does in England. So I thought it was a rather chaotic, unconvincing budget with quite a few hidden bombs in there that will explode and cause problems. Again, follow the policy, not the personality. I kind of, it is interesting. I mean, there are exceptions to this rule. But I mean, there's so. M- I love following personalities. I love the kind of Shakespearean drama of politics. But quite often, if you follow the policy trail, you get closer to what's happening than with the personality. There are, I think there are big exceptions. I think with leader of the opposition, uh, the personality matters because you can't deliver policy. The policy matters too you have to put forward a coherent set of policies linked to a party's values but then uh, which appeals to a wider electorate really difficult to do but you have to give it a go uh, but the personality has to set the stage alight in some form or another uh, to get noticed and that personality is then the vehicle for the messaging which really matters in relation to policy and values and obviously you know when you're dealing with something like this royal family drama it's all personality Uh, although it's caricatures i i don't get it i love i'm fascinated by celebrity and half my heroes are kind of rock stars and comedians and all the rest of it but i've never understood this royal family fascinating fascination because we don't know any of them at all even they don't give long interviews although famously one did or two have now three Diana and the duo in America uh, Megan and Harry but oh God what a, a anachronistic institution and but I said what I find so interesting is the fascination and I know it's not just in the UK it's kind of all over the place. Uh, who who do Meghan and Harry speak for now? They they've been excluded from this family. Um, I'm if you have to take sides, I'm absolutely on their side. They've got every right to feel tormented by the British newspapers, um, who are who can't take it when people retaliate. You know, um, they dole it out, but they don't like it back. But it's they are celebrities because they are celebrities and this royal family are apparently fascinating because they are born into it not for any other reason it's very curious but there we go i mean i'm i'm not an expert to speak about that but that is all to do with personality but it is interesting how often if you follow the policy trail things light up uh, in a way that doesn't always happen if you focus on the personality I always found it ironic by the way with Tony Benn because um, his personality certainly when he was speaking as an orator was absolutely part of his repertoire he was it was like listening to music if you heard any of his speeches you weren't really following the substance so much or what it implied but god could he hold an audience so he kind of was a walking contradiction of his own theory but Always follow the policy trail. That's a great thing, by the way, about podcasts. It gives you the space to kind of look at policy and not just focus on the personalities. Anyway, let's see what you're all focusing on with uh, questions. Got time for a few of them. Here's one from Gillian Charlesworth. Uh, She says, this is uh, Gillian, Dear Steve, from the sofa where I always sit when listening to you. A bit inactive, Gillian, compared to some. The question I keep coming back to is, what is the post-Brexit vision for this government? I've tried to put myself in their shoes and find a good reason for cutting all meaningful ties with the EU, but struggle to see it. Why don't they start being positive about it and trying to inspire us like a leader should? Or do they not have a vision? Yeah, well, I don't think they do, Ginny. I think it's confused, actually. I mean, there's all this talk about global Britain, but cutting ties with your biggest trading partner is not really a logical uh, way of developing that particular theme. And yes, they want to deregulate, but at the same time, they want to level up. Deregulation implies the state moving out of the way. Uh, Leveling up implies a much more active State, which is it? Uh, And in terms of global Britain, you have this maniac, David Frost, who I devoted a podcast to recently The Rise of Lord Frosty Frost he's uh god he's really annoying me i mean he's he's now threatening to break the law again in relation to the irish protocol he wrote this silly article for the sunday telegraph hailing this approach um and kind of patronizing the european union as if they're the ones who caused the problem remember the consequence of the irish protocol is all down to boris johnson's decision to negotiate a border between Britain and Northern Ireland rather than in the, between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland still in the European Union. That's what it arises from. And old Frosty with his machismo and thinking Britain rules the waves, it's so counterproductive. So I don't think there is a vision, Gillian, but let's wait and see. A question from Richard Pinchbeck about the BBC. Um, I hope you're well and have had a good start to 2021. I'm fine, thanks, Richard. hope you're okay. Um, oh, guess what? Oh, yeah. Now, some people don't like me saying what other people are doing while they listen to the podcast, but others really get into it. In fact, some people who email me saying, can we just focus on the politics, not what we're all doing? Then tell me what they're doing. So anyway, Richard says, um, I've been listening to your recent podcast in between painting a piece of modern art. That is so cool. I, I hope it's a brilliant piece of modern art. Kind of, maybe you're doing, you, you are our Picasso, Richard, whilst listening to the podcast. And when it's in the tape modern, the, it, my podcast will be next to it in honor anyway uh rich says my question concerns the bbc do you think the government has paused or ended its war with the corporation particularly given the new chair and director general are both conservative leaning individuals yeah i mean they both uh, one was a conservative donor the other the director general was a conservative candidate in a local election some time ago. Uh, if so, given that most of the BBC's rivals are now American-owned or financed, do you think this fact could inadvertently strengthen the BBC in future negotiations with the government? Well, that, that that's a kind of multi-layer question, Richard. It, it reached its peak of aggression when Dominic Cummings was around briefing that they were going to take the BBC down and so on. But the relationship now remains complicated. The BBC... Tens, from my experience, uh, I, I was there as a political correspondent, another a correspondent in other fields, and I'd do quite a lot for them to this very day. Um, the the biggest factor, the sort of emotional factor in the BBC is fear. Uh, fear, because there are so, there are lots of layers, and each layer is scared of the one above, and. They, they don't want to get into trouble on any front and those who tend to cause trouble most are right-wing newspapers, they're scared of the Daily Mail, they're scared of some of the Murdoch papers, they're scared of some uh, tweets and you, you quite often hear conversations if we say that we might get tweets about this and it's nearly always referring to tweets from uh, the kind of the Tory wing of things. Um, then you have the government which they probably calculate will be in power for years to come, looking at the opinion polls. Um, And it is a government. I mean, Johnson is no fan of the BBC. He's not as aggressive as Dominic Cummings. And that kind of all permeates through. And you know you've got a BBC chair and a BBC director general who in their time were inclined towards the Tories. And that, I do think, feeds through. So you don't get as much focus on some things going on at the moment as you would if it was a Labour prime minister. I've got no doubt, for example, a Labour prime minister would not have survived if he or she had presided over... Uh, a record-breaking death toll and a record-breaking economic slump in response to the pandemic. I've got no doubt at all that newspapers would have called for such a prime minister to resign and the broadcasters would then weigh in uh, and ask at press conferences are you going to resign and that feeds on itself and there's a kind of frenzy. And similarly I've got no doubt that uh, there would have been much more focus on the wasting of money on contracts for the PPE and so on and giving contracts to friends of you know, various government insiders and so on if it had been on the Labour side. There would have just been much more focus in the newspapers. The BBC would have followed it up uh, and so on. Uh, and it's not intentional bias amongst these broadcasters. Uh, there is a... It, you cannot help but be influenced by the papers which create a kind of mood and that mood is followed through and when you know the political positioning privately at some point in their lives anyway of the senior figures in a corporation and you believe perhaps wrongly that this government will be around forever it does have an impact Um, but I think there is absolutely no question at all but that the BBC will survive in what form I'm less sure about um, but there were times in the Cummings phase when even that was called into question okay let's move on to another uh, question thank you very much for that one uh, so there were quite a few about uh, Keir Starmer Sam Dawkins uh, wonders whether Keir Starmer is doing a bit better. He mentions last week's PMQs, where he focused on a single issue of Yemen uh, and making Johnson discomforted, according to Sam. Um, uh, It felt uh, like all Starmer needed was one witty line or put down. Um, I'm sure he could produce this for PMQs, he mentions an article there have been quite a few recently about Starmer and the almost insurmountable challenge the Labour leader faces and on how well he's he has done and is doing considering that situation well on that Sam I I don't fully agree Uh, I keep on hearing well Labour have lost the next election anyway um, and therefore in that context Keir Starmer is doing well Uh, against a government which is deeply flawed, whether, and there are many Conservative listeners of this podcast, but I'm sure even the Conservative listeners will agree that the flaws of this government are pretty open. And in its fourth successive term, whatever the context, that, that, that should provide uh, space for a successful opposition party uh, to at least remove the overall majority, but perhaps even to contemplate winning daring to contemplate winning that thing that uh, the Labour Party rarely succeeds in Um, so I think there is space for them to win and in that context uh, there's space for Keir Starmer to do a lot better I think he is capable of that um, but I think he has not had a brilliant time of it recently and I think their post-budget response uh, whilst coherent I talked a bit about it last week Uh, was poorly explained and and you have to shout it from the rooftops in the most accessible manner and in a way that enthuses as I've said before opposition is artistry it's not a science Um, so I don't take the view that things were so terrible and defeat is so inevitable that that is the context in which you make judgments uh thank you for that uh, uh loads thank you all for the starmer questions uh read them all um maybe do some more on another occasion uh one from dominica Joule from france dear steve if according to a well-placed source in brussels or back onto frost frost is not here to solve problems this is old frosty and given this latest kick in the shins for the EU from the British government this is breaking the law again over the protocol do you think this wrecking ball strategy uh, is long term what do you think are the aims and objectives of such damaging and counterproductive behavior well I don't think it is a long term uh, Dominic and I know you you write from you're in France Uh, I think it's very short term and I think it's kind of totally counterproductive i think there's a political dimension uh that as far as boris johnson is thinking very much about all of this and remember as i said earlier he created this situation uh no one else did um the european union had agreed to theresa may's deal which wouldn't have put us in this mess um god yeah we're all i'm starting to romanticize about theresa may's deal now I'm sort of, we're all this is all part of the craziness of where we are Um, But I think, you know, having a row with the uh, European Union is part of it, um, that it works politically. And all prime ministers, once they've won an election big time, tend to refight it on the same grounds. So there's a bit of that going on. Uh, They want to kind of frame an argument, oh, these bloody Europeans, leave it to Frosty and Boris to sort out. Um, but I think Frost thinks he's pleasing Johnson by being tough and that uh, Frost thinks by being tough he gets his way and I think in a very deluded way he thinks that's what happened before with the build-up to all of this Um, you know with his Christmas Eve deal on trade he thinks he prevailed when he didn't so there's a deluded element as well it's crazy what we're going through um but there we are um matt hackett thank you very much for your question keep listening in france you know we're not allowed there at the moment so you're lucky to have some are you in the sunshine i kind of hope i've got this image of you out in the sun sometimes listening to the podcast anyway matt hackett asks um i'm a new listener to the podcast but kicking myself that i didn't discover it much earlier well matt you can listen back to quite a few episodes but, but please, only if you've got time. Uh, Matt usually listens while I'm exercising in my improvised kitchen gym. Yeah, good use of resources. Um, now, he asks about um, the electoral reform and defends first past the post. He mentions John Cole's book. John Cole was a political editor at the BBC. Actually, I was a political correspondent, worked for John Cole. Um, and... John Cole was always against electoral reform and Matt mentions the fact that Peter Kellner who was the sophologist uh, columnist former political editor at the News Statesman uh, he says that PR is proportionate in its allocation of seats but grossly disproportionate in its allocation of power so anyway Matt's not a fan of electoral reform Uh, it's quite fashionable i get a lot of emails as you will all know arguing for electoral reform and saying that's the only way we're going to ever get a progressive government and there's quite a powerful case for that Um, but anyway he wonders whether there will be a change to the electoral system and uh, whether it will be a good thing and actually on whether there will be a change i don't think there will be because imagine if Labour were to win it's like the 97 thing you know where Blair flirted with the idea of electoral reform the moment Labour won a big majority he lost all interest in changing the voting system. I suppose there is a possibility that if there's a hung parliament and Starmer forms a genuinely good relationship with the other parties, the Greens, the Lib Dems, and those other parties have quite a few MPs. Big if at the moment, you know, looking at... I mean, the Greens are ahead in the Lib, of the Lib Dems in some polls, but that doesn't mean they'll win many seats. Um, and the Lib Dems have got very few MPs at the moment. After 1997, Lib Dems had done really well and had loads of seats, um, but still nothing happened on electoral reform. So I wonder whether electoral reform will happen. Uh, but whether or not it's a good thing there is a strong case that it's just as effective to have two big parties that are coalitions but the problem is with that that party unity is seen as so important and so significant that yet parties are always divided So this game has to be played where you kind of, there's a pretend unity, and yet the divisions are open. And kind of managing that is so draining for a party leader, as Starmer is discovering now. I mean, Johnson's technique, which in some ways, I mean, in some ways was appalling, but in other ways highly effective, was just to kick out all those who didn't believe in his Brexit strategy. So he imposed a kind of unity, the alternative, the sort of Harold Wilson technique. By the way, Alex Salmon always said to me he was a great admirer. Wilson was his hero. And Starmer has quoted Wilson as someone who kept Labour united and winning elections. But it's very, very difficult and draining. And it completely exhausted Wilson. And Starmer's not doing a very good job of it. I mean, the purging of Corbyn and so on, has, I think, was the, was the moment when all the old tensions were reignited. Uh, without doing much for uh, Starmer so um, yeah it's it's really complicated I can see an argument if a progressive alliance is formed you get electoral reform through and it's the only way England stops electing Tory majority governments but if Labour win with the majority forget about it Um, and also with the other parties kind of fractured at the moment they haven't got the muscular power to bring it about so you might be right on both counts Matt that it, it won't happen shouldn't and finally from uh, Nigel Tantrum uh, this is a nice one to end with uh, he says dear Steve I used to listen to your podcast on the train to Tokyo obviously I don't do that so much now for obvious reasons despite Japan having apparently better Covid numbers than the UK currently I listen to you whilst playing Diablo 3 this is a computer game it takes a little effort to balance the noise of the game with the podcast output but i manage i also listen to other podcasts obviously not as good as yours in a sedentary position well blimey that's think about that playing a game and taking in all our inspirational insights from around the world i'd go crazy i'd go crazy just taking in all our inspirational insights Anyway, Nigel writes, when living in the UK, I was briefly a student representative, actually receiving my degree certificate from Harold Wilson. Yes, I'm too old to be playing computer games. Yeah, well, that kind of puts you in a certain age bracket, Nigel. Anyway, he canvassed at one time or another for both major parties and was for a while a trade union branch secretary. Which all brings me to my question. I've met a lot of political activists and a few politicians, though clearly not as many as you. What is it about your podcast that attracts so many athletes, as in my time the politically active mostly either drank beer or Chardonnay Chardonnay and talked a lot? Have things changed in the last 20 years I've been away? Yeah, well, actually, Nigel, the answer to that question is... Most politically active people drink loads of beer, drink loads of Chardonnay and some red wine and some other stuff and talk a lot and then go running the next morning with a hangover listening to this podcast. Uh, anyway, maybe maybe what it is is actually this podcast is unique in attracting political activists who don't talk very much about what they do and a load of athletes who just happen to be interested in politics. But thank you very much for noting something rather odd going on with this kind of well-being anyway I'm going to stop there Nigel if you don't mind because some people don't like me talking about the well-being dimension let us conclude with some thoughts to my surprise to be honest I conclude that current personal dramas of which there are many being played out are not as significant as the underlying themes and waves which they seek to to ride and that includes some big personalities in different ways Alex Salmon, Nicholas Sturgeon, Boris Johnson and others Uh, with the exception of that royal soap opera which for me remains a wholly bizarre phenomenon and incidentally in some ways ones which raise many questions about hereditary rights but that's for another podcast. Oh yeah, just one other reminder if it's okay with you. March the 17th, living stream, another lockdown special live at King's Place. Tickets are available on their website now. I'll tell you next week what my theme will be. Uh, and I, I think I might do two themes, one in the first half, one in the second half, um, and but include your questions and predictions and we'll have some fun. And that night, I can tell you, Nigel, I hope you'll be watching from Tokyo, uh, there will be plenty of wine consumed. Anyway, I hope you get your ticket on the King's Place website. Thanks so much for listening this week. Thank you for all your questions. Uh, sorry I didn't get through as many as I had hoped to do, but that theme of personality and policy, or the issues, Tony Ben called it as well, the issues, is I think a very interesting one and although i resolved it in favor of the issues i'm not wholly sure thanks a lot see you next week oh yeah do subscribe to the podcast i've been told i must tell you each week subscribe then you get it automatically it just appears as if by magic and if you could rate it on that itunes thing great but only if you give it you know all the stars available at your disposal thanks so much see you next week bye